So in Buddhism, we have a basic founding framework. This is really the founding framework of the Buddha's teachings. And that framework basically says that the root of suffering is ignorance. The root of suffering is ignorance, this basic ignorance. The Sanskrit word for that ignorance is avidya. And vidya literally means knowledge or uh, recognition. And so avidya is non-recognition, is misknowledge, ignorance. In Tibetan, the word that's used to translate avidya is marigpa, which could be translated into English as non-awareness. So this ignorance is, it's not a lack of information, but it's uh, a non-awareness or a closure of awareness, a dimming or eclipsing of awareness. So the root of suffering is ignorance, and freedom from suffering is wisdom. Wisdom is liberation. Wisdom is enlightenment. Wisdom is freedom, basic freedom. So what is this ignorance? There's a simple way to state this. And this is very practical. We find ourselves caught, enclosed in the web woven by the information processing system. We find ourselves enclosed in the system of thought. This is dualistic thought, generally speaking. So this is the conceptual mind. Uh, this is the mind that all of us are very familiar with. The basis of this dualistic mind is the subject-object division. We perceive the world basically in terms of self and other, I and other. And that basic division then proliferates. And conceptualization is formed through distinction through discrimination. Basically, we're just talking about thought. That's what thought is. Thought is discriminatory. Thought is differentiating. It's identifying. And by identifying, differentiating from something else. So we become caught in that mind. We are identified with the world that is constructed through that dualistic mind. And that is what the Buddha is calling avidya, is that identification or that enclosure in the matrix of thought. As Joko Beck, Zen teacher, puts it in her 
adaptation of the Buddha's Four Noble Truths, she says, caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering. That's her version of the Buddha's first noble truth, which is usually stated as, there is suffering. And Joko Beck is just making it clear what the root source of that suffering is. Caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering. Now we get caught in this dream when we believe our thoughts, when we buy into the stories that our mind weaves. It's not a problem just to have a mind that generates stories that is necessary, that is natural, that is part of who we are. But the identification, the attachment, the loss of perspective that happens when our sense of reality is narrowed to what can be perceived through the projection of thought, through the mediation of dualistic perception. We mistake that for true. We mistake our thoughts about reality for the truth. And in that difference lies the difference between heaven and hell, the difference between suffering and freedom. So what do we do? We, we shift out of this identification. This is really the basic movement of Buddhist practice, is shifting out of total alignment, total locked into dualistic perception, into a basic awareness. The Tibetan Rigpa. Rigpa is pure presence. It's pure unmediated presence, spontaneous self-arising. This is the mind ground. We can recognize the qualities of this mind that is always present. It is inherently luminous. It has a quality of knowingness. It has a quality of clarity. It is unobstructed. It's self-perceiving. It's self-radiating. Shifting to that view is what we're doing all the time in meditation and really all the time in all of the various practices that we do. We are exercising the power, the freedom we have to make that shift. This inherently luminous mind, always present, has a quality of gnosis. It has a knowing quality, a cognizance that is inherent within it. Gnosis, the word gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, is, S-I-S, is cognate with the English word knowledge, and it's cognate with the Sanskrit word jnana, which is one of the terms for this basic wisdom, this basic consciousness in the Buddhist tradition. The word prajna has the same nya, that same root, 
is cognate with knowledge, gnosis, jnana, prajna. Those are all pointing to this intrinsically luminous, self-radiating, self-knowing awareness. It's not something that has to be contrived or constructed, but we can shift into or step back into a recognition, relax into that awareness, allowing that awareness to shine forth spontaneously. And we know when we sit in meditation, we know that it's mostly a matter of letting go, mostly a matter of letting go of the perpetual activity of thought, letting go of the grasping, the contraction that we feel. We feel the contraction that comes from just constant habitual thinking. And so we learn to let go of that contraction, to relax that contraction in various ways. There are so many ways to do that. And it's not always a straight path. We don't always know. We don't always have a formula that tells us in a linear way, these are the steps. But we have to always be responding to that feeling of contraction, learning It's more of a know-how that we develop in practice. It's not that we learn the formula and then we know exactly what to do, but we feel it out, like learning to ride a bike or learning to drive or something like that. We learn how to respond to that contraction in all of its many manifestations. So, on a rather coarse level, we make this shift from thinking mind to awareness by shifting away from just the wandering habits of mind. So when we sit down, the bell rings, all the kind of shopping lists and regrets and judgments of other people and fantasies about the weather and some future vacation in Hawaii, all of that, we just shift away from that. We turn our attention from that involuntary spinning of the mind to some support, some object of meditation in our immediate sensory field, the body, the breath. And we use that as a support. It's not that the body or the breath is somehow more real than the thoughts. But that the body or the breath helps us. It serves as a support for coming back to an absorption in the basic awareness that is always present. So it helps to dislodge our identification with the thought chain. We're so wrapped up in thought, we need something to loosen that and to bring us back, to help us to settle into presence because thought darts in every direction. It's very ephemeral, it's it's very jumpy, it's not uh, conducive to a centering, grounded presence. So we use these methods to come back to presence. But when we're talking about dualistic conceptual mind, we're talking about something that actually extends 
into subtler levels also. It's not just the coarse wandering thoughts of the default pattern of the brain, but it's deeper or subtler levels of duality, subtler levels of self, a sense of self and other. You could even say that this extends into a preconceptual level of identification, of division between self and other. So let's just take a moment now and you might want to close your eyes or just tune into your ordinary sense of self. And this is really easy to do. Just the sense that I am here right now. All of us probably have some sense of that right now. I am here. Find that in your experience and then tune into that and let your attention rest on that, the locus of that I am here. What is that referring to? I am here. Find it in your experience. Can you find a boundary between that I am here and what is outside of it? And you can scan through your body, scan through your sensory field, scan through your whole field of conscious attention, your thoughts, sensations, maybe even something you just really can't describe, some je ne sais quoi, this sense of I that is just very familiar, you can't quite identify it with a sensation, but feel it, just tune into it. And then look a little bit. What is it pointing to? And come back to that as much as feels good, feels useful. So this boundary of thought and other, of self and other is proliferated through our conceptual thought, and it also has this kind of deep-seated locus in our consciousness, in our sense of existence, that we have to investigate. We really have to probe that. And the more we investigate that, the more, I think, we recognize that when we talk about releasing the grip of duality, we're talking about a radical release. We're talking about a very deep release into a very deep level of awareness. Just to get a sense of of how radical this is, think about the moment of death. Imagine the moment of death. At the moment of death, 
everything will be taken away. Everything that right now we think of as our life, as our world, as this is who I am, this is what it means to exist, everything will be dissolved. And so what will be left there? And what is left there, that's what we mean when we're talking about this intrinsically radiant awareness. It's not reducible to anything that will leave at the time of death. So the level of letting go that we're called into in Zazen is that level of letting go, the letting go that we will all face at the moment of death. So this is, this is a contemplation to uh, consider. Uh, and for each of us, that will be different, how that contemplation operates for us. For me, that's very meaningful. For you, you have to find a way of feeling into that level of letting go that is real for you. So this is a deep letting go. And thought grips us on many levels. So our practice encompasses all of these levels. And so our practice is always multidimensional and is always engaging on many levels, on many levels of depth, levels of subtlety. Byron Katie's work, we're entering into this week-long retreat where we're using the methods developed by Byron Katie. This is a discipline of engaging with thought and dissolving habitual thought patterns. And these are the patterns that actually reinforce and give apparent substance to the dualistic matrix of thought. So these very, very subtle level of duality, but the whole edifice of dualistic thought is maintained through our very conventional, very ordinary stories that we tell ourselves about who we are and what we're doing in the world and what we like and what we don't like and what we know and what we don't know and so forth. And so by engaging with those thoughts, we're doing the work of liberation that deep transformative work, that, that letting go, we're doing that work by engaging with all of our habitual thoughts. And the work, Byron Katie's work, helps with that. When we do that, we we're exposing the fixed assumptions that we have. We might not realize that we have them. And we're, we're dislodging, we're exposing it, and we're dislodging those fixed assumptions. And that's something that might not happen if we're just sitting, focusing on the breath, or just sitting, trying to quiet the mind. We might not be doing that work. Those habitual thoughts 
They might be quieted to some extent, but, but they will come back. But those patterns, those tendencies are still in place. And unless we really recognize those patterns and learn to extricate ourselves from them, loosen their grip on us, create some space around them, and at the very least expose them to our awareness, they're just going to continue to come back. And so this is important work. And it's work that is best done in conjunction with meditation and embodied mindfulness. The, the integration of this kind of inquiry and stable, calm attention is powerful. So, doing this work, we can engage with these relatively conventional, relatively superficial thought patterns like, I'm angry at my mom because she yelled at me, or whatever, whatever the story is that we're telling ourselves. We can engage with the interpersonal, the level, the social conventional level, but we can also engage with deeper entrenched metaphysical views that we have. Like, I am here, or I am going to die. So those are thoughts that we can examine and question. And Byron Katie presents these four questions, which, of course, she didn't invent. The questions are, is it true? Can you absolutely know that it's true? What happens when you believe that thought? And who would you be if you let go of that thought? Those questions are implicit in all of the practice that we do, but we can very explicitly direct them towards thoughts that show up in our stream of consciousness. And we can do that work systematically. And so we can do it with those kind, the, those existential thoughts too. I am going to die. Something's wrong. Thoughts like that are great to examine. So the result of the work, as Byron Katie puts it, is relaxing into the mind that is at home with itself. This is what Dogen Zenji calls the Dharma gate of joyful ease. This is how Dogen defines Zazen in his universal instructions on Zazen. He says, Zazen is not meditation practice. It is simply the Dharma gate of joyful ease. It is simply the mind at home with itself. So letting go of our thoughts, the mind at home with itself. When we think about the basic wisdom mind in this way, in terms of the Dharma gate of joyful ease, it helps us to see that wisdom and compassion are inseparable. 
It helps us to see that practicing wisdom is completely fused with the qualities of the boundless heart, compassion, joy, love, equanimity. These qualities, the boundless heart that contains and radiates these qualities, we could say that that heart is what holds the wisdom mind, that it's actually the space, the expanse that holds the wisdom mind, that sustains the wisdom mind, that nurtures the wisdom mind, that animates the wisdom mind, that animates all the practices that help us open up into wisdom. It's the heart of compassion that is the engine that keeps all of that practice going. And so the practices of the heart are foundational and absolutely essential to any kind of wisdom practice and any kind of meditation. Nurturing these qualities is something that we have to be constantly doing, really. We have to be constantly doing. So we're, we're responding to suffering. So when we're engaging with stressful thoughts, we're responding to suffering. And that is the practice of compassion. So sometimes compassion is very much alive for us, and we just may not be aware of it. So consider that. Maybe just if you sit down to meditate and you notice that you're engaging with your mind in a particular way, maybe just consider, why am I doing this at all? Why, why do I actually want to let go of my thoughts and have a clear mind at all? Why does that matter? And that might help to just remind us of, oh, there's a deep wellspring of compassion underlying all of this that brought me here in the first place. And then we can reconnect with that and begin to open up in a more intimate way all of those qualities, uh, the benevolence that is infusing our meditation always, the wish for all beings to be free, the wish for fundamental well-being for ourselves and for others, to reconnect with that, to rediscover that, and to feel it, to feel it and to mobilize it, mobilize the energy of that compassion in our practice, to enhance our practice. And sometimes responding to stressful thoughts only calls for just a basic friendliness. Sometimes that's all the practice that's needed. If there's some stressful thought, maybe all we have to do is just be with it, with a heart of presence, a heart of 
appreciation, forgiveness, gratitude, a basic friendliness, a basic kind acceptance, a radical atonement, that is truly letting go. That radical atonement, really just being one with exactly what is coming up for us, is letting go. It's not that we have to get rid of anything or somehow escape into some kind of void where nothing's happening. No, but the, the letting go is letting go of the solidified relationship that we have to our thoughts, to ourselves, and to the world. So this energy, this heart energy, is the medium, is the substrate for everything that we're doing with the work, everything that we're doing with meditation, everything we're doing on the path of wisdom. And this path of wisdom, compassion, this is the path of the great vehicle, the path of the Mahayana. And the way to begin on this path and the way to continue on this path is through bodhicitta. Bodhicitta, this is the Sanskrit word meaning the awakening heart-mind. It's the awakening heart-mind. It's the ground of all enlightened qualities. It's the heart awakening to its own boundless, infinite, limitless nature. The heart awakening to its own boundless freedom, its own inherent freedom. So it's, it has a natural quality. It's, it's the natural spirit of evolution at work through us, through our consciousness, through our experience. Bodhicitta it is the, the intrinsic force of awakening. And it includes everyone. It has an aspirational quality. It, it is expressed as the wish for all beings to be free from suffering. The wish for all beings, including oneself, to be free, to be happy. It, bodhicitta brings together in this way vow. It brings together our aspiration, wisdom, because it contains within it the awakened mind itself. And it brings compassion, the all-inclusive wish for the benefit of all beings. So bodhicitta encompasses all three of these dimensions. So generating bodhicitta is a gateway into practice in general. And it can be the beginning of our practice. So if we sit down, really very consciously opening up to that wish for the benefit of everyone is a very good practice. In the Tibetan Mahayana traditions, that's made very explicit. For any session of practice, no matter how short or long, the practitioner sits down and they begin with several steps, one of which, one of the first of which is generating bodhicitta. 
Usually it starts with taking refuge and then generating, generating bodhicitta, the wish for all beings to be free from suffering and the causes of suffering, for all beings to enjoy happiness and the causes of happiness. So when, when we practice bodhicitta and when we live and practice in the spirit of bodhicitta, there's no limit to what we can do. There's no limit to what we're able to engage because we've stepped beyond the conceptual, rational mind. And so we're open then to whatever opportunities for practice, whatever resources for practice come forth, whatever situations come forth, we're able to embrace that as the path. That is really the power of bodhicitta, that it opens up the all-inclusive path, the all-inclusive way of practice, so that everything becomes instantaneously integrated into the path, everything recognized as exactly what is needed for waking up to continue. Includes everything that manifests in everyone, our hearts open to everyone, all beings, human and non-human, seen and unseen. The more we generate bodhicitta, the more we recognize our kinship with every imaginable life form, every imaginable being that we might encounter. And then we can trust in the spaciousness of that heart of bodhicitta. And with that trusting, this is a real experiential consequence of that trusting, that the things that we fear, the places where we get stuck when we think that we've hit a dead end or we think we have gone off track or we think we are lost or we messed up or we're not practicing correctly or we're hopeless or we failed, those are the places where we, bodhicitta enables us to recognize that, oh, no, actually this is part of it too. No, actually this is just bodhisattva activity manifesting right here in this whatever it is. That could be just the tiniest little irritation, unpleasant sensation, or some truly catastrophic thing that's happening, or some really dire thoughts all of it becomes the path, is turned to gold by bodhicitta. So then we can engage all the methods and we don't have to worry so much about you know, the results. We don't have to be so caught up in the game of, oh, I've got to do this right, you know, I better get this right, I've better accomplish the goal. We can do Byron Katie's work, we can do chanting practice, bowing practice, we can read the sutras, we can do whatever inspires us and whatever we find ourselves doing, eating lunch, engaging with other people, just being in the world, and we can do it wholeheartedly. 
with that confidence and trust, knowing that we are held within that vow, within the heart of bodhicitta. So, bodhicitta will transform everything. So let's just end by very actively together generating this energy of bodhicitta and you know, we say generating, um, but, you know, that's not really needed. It's, we don't have to generate anything. Uh, it's right here. So let's just connect with this deep intention. And this recognition of the heart's true aspiration which cannot be obstructed, which cannot be destroyed. That aspiration is possible in every circumstance. You might imagine yourself finding that, whether it's some difficulty you're experiencing now or some difficulty you can imagine experiencing right now, recognizing that that wish permeates all of it. And now seal that in and remember that wish, remember the capacity to open up to that aspiration, that infinite intention for the well-being of all. In any circumstance you find yourself in. Please remember that. 